Well, take your Bible, if you have not already, and open to the book of James, chapter 1. We're in a series in the book of James entitled, Faith, Just Live It. You see already the title of the message today, Trials versus Temptation. And I believe one of the greatest challenges to your living your faith is the constant battle against your faith uh, by the enemy's temptations. The temptation of your soul, which is designed by the enemy on purpose to break your faith and to undermine your walk with God. In the fall of 2009, for the first time in 47 years, uh, it became known that tuna were running just 30 miles off of the coast of Cape Cod. And uh, they were biting. And uh, all you need to catch one is just uh, a sharp hook and some bait. And the rewards were do, for doing so were pretty substantial. You see, they had Japanese buyers willing to pay as much as $50,000 for a good uh, meaty bluefin tuna. And so many people who weren't really skilled enough in tuna fishing uh, decided that they wanted to become tuna fishermen because of the kind of money and because of, they were near and because they were paying such dividends. And so many people headed out to sea in small boats. And what these fishermen didn't realize is that uh, the problem wasn't in catching the tuna because they were running. The problem was at what to do with them after you've caught one. And on September 23rd in 2009, the uh, a 19-foot boat named the Christie Ann capsized while doing battle with the tuna. A 19-foot boat was turned over by this tuna. But that same day, a, another boat, a, the Basic Instinct, which was a 27-foot long fishing boat, was also capsized by the tuna it caught. And then yet another, a 28-footer, official business was its name, was swamped by the tuna. Actually, a 28-foot boat was swamped after it hooked into a 600-pound tuna. The tuna literally pulled that 28-foot boat underwater. These fishermen, you see, they underestimated the power of the fish that they were trying to catch. That's what temptation does to us. We think we can handle it, and it takes us by surprise. The temptation may look great on the surface, but it's only after it hooks us that we discover the incredible power that it has upon us. James talks about temptation today. I want us to, to share some insights that he gives us. If you're physically able to stand, would you do that with me? So we honor the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. James writes and says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Lord, would you teach and instruct us today? I give you my thoughts I give you my mind, I give you my, my study, I give you my mouth. I pray, Father, that you will use these, Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit 
to speak through your word to us and instruct us, Lord, in this incredible and challenging battle of our faith, how to deal with temptation. Now, Father, clear our hearts and our heads from anything that would distract us from hearing what you have to say. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, you know, we've been in this, uh, this book now for several weeks, and uh, we've been talking about trials, right? In fact, we took a little detour and went over to 1 Peter because he talks about trials also, and it's very similar, though they were written a, a great deal apart in terms of years. But now we come to verses 12 in the first chapter there, and most of the first chapter, well, at least what we've looked at, has talked about how do you cope with the trials that come, and trials are not... Uh, trials are not uh, uh, um, an option trials are going to happen in your life but here he shifts a gear but I want you to understand something the context in which he is speaking is still the context of trials now so why does he start talking about temptations well he's writing because these Christians have done what many Christians today still do they confuse the difference between trials and temptations and James knew that these Christians were dealing with both of them just like you and I do. They were dealing with trials, but they were also dealing with temptations. And these things were challenging their faith, and consequently they were confusing the two. And so some were saying, well, trials come from God. We talked about all the sources of trials. But others were saying, and so do temptations. Well, God's just tempting me. God is, has tempted me with it. I have to tell you, I grew up in, a, in an environment that would say that from time to time. Well, that, that temptation's from God. But James makes uh, certain that we understand that trials and temptations are not the same thing. They may be confused by people uh, at times, but it's important that we understand there is a difference. And so he clarifies that difference, and then he explains why. And here's what he wants us to understand. If I just had to sum it up in a statement, if I had to give you the big idea, it would be this. Trials can develop us spiritually, but temptations, when yielded to, can destroy us spiritually. Did you get that? If I had to sum it up, if that were the big idea, trials can develop us spiritually, but temptation, when yielded to, can destroy us spiritually. Now, temptation, being tempted, is not a sign of, of spiritual weakness. All of us are tempted, but it is our response to temptation that is the difference maker. So I want to give you three insights from James that I believe he passes on to us. And the first is this, we are lured, uh, urged to live with a faithful continuous continuation. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, if you go on and read uh, uh, verse 13, as we did a minute ago, you may think, well, James seems to be equating trials and temptation now, as if they're synonymous, but th that's not at all what he's doing. So I, I want you to understand why the context of trials is important in understanding the impact of temptation. You see, what James is doing here is making a very, very significant point to these Christians and to us. And here it is. Trials have a way of wearing us down, don't they? Trials have a way of causing us sometimes to want to give up. And many times they cause us to want to just give in to whatever it is. In other words, the, the, 
the storms, the trials, the sufferings, the difficulties can beat on us to the point that they weaken us and they can make us vulnerable. Does that make sense? So trials can make you, when you become vulnerable, they can make you easy prey for the temptations of the devil. Do you see the connection? So you're beaten upon with trial after trial. You're pounded upon by the storms or the difficulties or the sufferings that may come. And guess what? So the devil says, okay, their faith is still there, but I've wobbled them. They're weakened because of the trial. And guess what? When you become weak, you become vulnerable. And when you become vulnerable, you become easy prey. Because we remember what Peter said, your adversary, the devil, is roaming about looking for someone that he might devour so he's looking who's weak who's weak who's which storms have beat them down to the point that they're susceptible to temptations where they just feel like I can't I can't face uh, uh, the temptation any longer or, and so he knows that the weariness of our soul can sometimes make us susceptible to the trials that I mean to the temptations of the enemy and so when we're weary from the trials and the difficulties, one of the most important things we must do is not drop our guard. In fact, we must heighten our guard when we're weary from the trials so that we don't become uh, easy prey. Uh, and, and we must heighten our sensitivity uh, to what's going on around us. I, I told you uh, the other night that uh, we've had a snake issue. <laughs> I tell you, I hate snakes. They go all the way back to the garden. They weren't any good there. They're not any good here. In fact, I can tell you, a snake will turn me into a sissy. <laughs> there. I mean, and I'm not the only guy that feels that way. But we, we've, uh, so we've had this snake. I, I put out snake traps this weekend. Now, we hadn't seen one since last Sunday. You know, if you weren't here, my wife went home from... I, I killed a four-foot rattlesnake uh, just a few weeks ago in our backyard. And then we, we have... Uh, and that, that's that a long story. My grandsons... Somebody asked, were you scared? I said, in the moment, I wasn't scared. Because you know what I'm thinking? I've got to deal with that snake because my grandsons walk around back here. And you know what? My grandsons gave me courage, and they didn't even know it, to say, I'm going to deal with that thing, and I killed it. And then I beat my chest. Actually, I passed out after I killed it. I <laughs> but then we've had rat snakes is what we've, we've had around the house. And, you know, look, don't come up after the service and say, Pastor, rat snakes are good. <laughs> they eat rats. I know all of that, and I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't care. And so, but at any rate, um, so my wife goes home from church last Sunday, walks into our closet off of our bedroom, and there's a seven to eight foot rat snake looking at her. I'm here preaching. Thank you, Jesus. 
So I couldn't go to her aid. But fortunately, we have a deacon two houses up. And she called this deacon, Brian Eldridge, and said, Brian, you got to come down here. i got a snake in, there's a snake in the closet. Now, now, you may think Brian is brave. He did go kill it. But Brian hates them too. We've already had this conversation. And he said, well, it may mess your carpet up. And Allison said, I don't care. And she said, I'm sorry when, she, when I got home because I had to clean up some snake. <laughs> this is far more than I meant to tell in this story. <laughs> uh, but I said, she said, I, I, you know, he had to do this. I said, I don't care either. We can, we can put carpet in the closet. I'm not living with snakes. Well, I, here's, so it's gone. I put out snake traps yesterday, which I hope reveal that they're all gone and we don't really catch them because if it catches them, they're still alive. Okay, enough of that. Why did I tell you that long story? Because I hate snakes. (laughs) (laughs) Snakes and temptation go together, right? All right, so that's why I told you. No, that's not why I told you either, but I think it's probably true. I tell you why I told you that story. First of all, my wife moved out of the bedroom for three nights. (laughs) She said, I'm just sorry. I just can't, I can't, I can't sleep back there because it would have had to go on right past my bed. And so she, for three nights, she, she, she slept on the couch until that was miserable. (laughs) She decided to take her chances with the snakes. But can I tell you this? Right now in our house, (laughs) We walk around like this. (laughs) My wife will say, would you come open the closet door? (laughs) Oh, yeah, no problem. (laughs) It's all clear. You can come on. I just walked. I walked right in. But do you understand what I'm saying? Our awareness of snakes has been greatly heightened. We're looking for snakes everywhere. <laughs> we jumped. There was an electrical cord <laughs> laying down. And I set a new high jump record. I mean, you think we're sensitive right now? Yes. Why? Because we had an encounter. We had an encounter. Do you know what? When you've had an encounter with a storm... It should heighten your senses. You know why? Because you're vulnerable. Right? And so that's what James is saying to us. Trials can make us vulnerable. We, the storm can beat upon you. you. Some of you are facing those kinds of storms right now. I want to tell you, heighten your spiritual senses. Because the devil will watch And he will say, yeah, they're beat down now. Now I'm going to throw these temptations at them because they're vulnerable. They're spiritually, they just feel like, I I don't know if I can handle anymore. And he knows that. He's roaming about. There's one. There's one. They're weak. They're beaten down. The storms. When we're weary, 
we must be careful not to drop our guard. Steadfastness in trials, that's what, okay, back to trials. That's why he starts this section on temptation by talking about being steadfast in trials. Why? So that you'll be able to stand against the temptations that come. The second thing I want you to notice that James points out is he, he points out a false declaration. Look at verse 13. He said, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Plain and simple. God is never the source of temptation. Now, you remember a few weeks back when we talked about the sources, the four different sources of trials, we said sometimes God is the source of a trial or a test in your life, right? But God is never the source of temptation in your life. God is never. There's no exception. He is never the source of temptation. God himself is not tempted to evil, and in turn, he does not tempt his creation to evil. And God will never try to make you stumble and disobey him. Do you get that? God will never try to cause you to trip up and stumble. He may test your faith, but he will never try to make your faith fail. He will never try to tempt you with that which is evil. It's ludicrous to believe that a loving father would try to make their own child fail, isn't it? A lot of parents, grandparents in this place, we would never try to make our child, we never try to set our child up for failure, would we? I mean, what a cruel, wicked, evil parent that would be that would say, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to see if I can cause my child to fail spiritually, physically, any way, emotionally. It would never happen. <clears throat> and so it's ludicrous to believe that a perfect heavenly father would try and make his own children fail spiritually. Temptation is not of God. Man is always so blaming someone else for tempting him. Isn't that right? He's always blaming someone or something for tempting them and then subsequently uh, leading uh, that person into uh, to sin. People are always looking for an excuse. Yeah, go back to the garden, all right? You remember when the serpent, there's that snake thing, when the serpent came to Eve and said, uh, has God really said? By the way, the, here's often the way the devil does it. He, he just puts doubt in your mind. Has God really said you shall not eat of the tree of life. You, you know what? God's holding out on you. That's what the devil said to, to Eve. He doesn't want, because he knows the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. Well, there was truth to that. They would know good and evil because they would now be on the dark side of the equation. And so, but do you remember when when they sinned, they recognized they were naked. They made coverings. That was the first blood atonement, by the way. They, uh, uh, there were animals. They used uh, fig leaves. God covered them in animal skins. But do you remember when they had that God confronted them about this? And Do you remember the response? Do you remember what, what the man said? 
the leader of the home. It's this woman you gave me. It's this, it's this woman you gave me. I, I, look, I wasn't going to do it, God, but you know how she is. And so <clears throat> I, I ate alongside of her. So God says to the woman, why did you do this? And you know what she said? She said, it wasn't my fault, it was that serpent. She said, the serpent made me do it. <clears throat> now, do you understand below all of that is another implication? What they both were really doing were blaming God. God, she made me do it. You gave her to me, so you gave her to me, so really, God, it's your fault. And she said, well, God, it's not my fault, it's the serpent. And you created the serpent, therefore, God, really, this all gets back to you. Man has always looked for an excuse to blame uh, his yielding to temptation uh, and sin. It's always looked for an excuse. Maybe you, you've heard this, maybe you've used it. I, I don't know the excuse that my dog ate my homework. Well, let me give you a new twist on that one. How about my puppy drove my car into the pond? John Costello from Boston claims that he had taken his three-month-old German shepherd for a walk around Bolivar Pond in Canton, Massachusetts, and he started up his car to drive it home, and apparently that's when the puppy took over, he said. And he told a local news station, he said, and I quote, the dog just jumped into the car and hit the gear shift, and when she slammed it into drive, she fell on top of the gas pedal. And he said, the rest is history. The car went for a complete swim. We all did, in fact. They said the car was totally submerged and uh, was totaled out. Fortunately, the dog and the owner got out but he said, the guy said, it was a dog's fault. Our culture has mastered the art of excusing sinful behavior, hasn't it? By blaming it, that behavior on someone or something else. We, we've watched businesses in the last couple of years get destroyed. We've watched them get burned to the ground. We've watched them be looted. And then we've heard the excuse that it was all just a justified expression of anger. Just this week, the city of Denver paid out $4.7 million not to victims of protests who lost their businesses and their jobs. They paid $4.7 million out to the protesters who destroyed the businesses of these innocent victims. And they paid it out on the basis of the protesters who had destroyed the, the businesses and vandalized they paid these protesters $4.7 million because the protesters said they were unfairly arrested and their own First and Fourteenth Amendment rights had been violated. You can't make this stuff up. It's not our fault. You violated our rights. All we did was burn some buildings down, loot and, and, and uh, destroy the future of some people, but it's not our fault because when you arrested us for doing it, you violated our First Amendment right of freedom of expression. Or we hear things like this. Now, don't call my behavior wrong, and particularly don't call it sinful, 
Because God made me this way. This is just the way God made me. In other words, it's God's fault. But in a world of victims, James makes it perfectly clear that God is never to blame. You may blame other things, but God is never to blame for temptation and the subsequent sinful behavior and that you and I and the whole world are responsible when we yield to the evil that lies within us. When we give in and yield to temptation. And frankly, at some point, we have to stop blaming other people for our behavior and start owning it ourselves. And listen, apart from a move of God in this country, we're toast. Because of this. But I want to tell you something. If you want to see a change happen, you've got to change people's lives. And people have to understand they're responsible and quit passing it off and blaming other things. And this is, the devil has mastered turning people into victims. We are now in the age of victimization. Well, I'm a victim, and so therefore I can do whatever I want. I can act however I want. I can act out behaviors that are clearly against the Word of God. Why? Because I'm a victim. The only way, aside from a move of God, that a culture can stabilize itself is when it takes responsibility for its irresponsible behavior. And the distinction that James is making is this. Unlike trials, temptations are always from the devil. And there is no excuse that is acceptable for sin that results because we respond to temptation. Now, let me just clarify something. I think you've probably heard me say this many times over the years. Temptation itself is not sin. But you can't toy with temptation because you're not as strong as you think you are. And the tuna will swamp your spiritual ship. And so, and so temptation itself is not sin. It's the subsequent response that makes the difference for good or for bad. So how does temptation operate? And that leads me to the final point that I want you to see this morning. And James gives us, number three, a factual explanation. Verses 14 and 15 in particular talk about that. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is a factual explanation. So he says, now God is not the author of temptation. It always comes from the devil. All of us are tempted. There's no sin in being tempted. But what what temptation can lead to is what should concern us and keep us alert. And did you notice he makes this statement, but each person, did you notice the, the, the nature of his statement is that temptation is personal? That that means this, you and I have to look at it from the standpoint of not kind of a corporate idea, temptation, you know, kind of generically, but we've got to look at it personally, and James takes it personally. He's he's writing to Christians, he's writing to uh, believers, he's writing to a church, but when he gets to temptation, he gets real specific. He says, each person, personalize this, that's what he's saying, this is about you, this is about me, this is personal. The devil's attack is personal it may become corporate and that is 
how you respond to temptation may have an impact on other people around you. It could subsequently cause other people to yield to temptation as well because you yield or you give in other people uh, begin to process the the temptation or the idea or whatever it is and you can lead cause other people to follow suit okay so it can have a corporate it can have a corporate effect by the way I think churches sometimes can have that problem but at first is personal and so James wants us to understand the 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 actual explanation of these stages how does it progress and he makes it pretty clear there he gives us these three stages the first stage is this it begins with the desire stage notice he says in verse 4 but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed now being lured and enticed is not sin but this is the first stage this is where it begins the desire stage This is where it starts. It's when curiosity begins to subtly soften your resistance. Just like the process in the garden, right? Where Eve, the devil softened her up. He planted ideas and she began to mull over those ideas. And it's interesting when you notice he uses the word, he is lured and enticed. James is using a fishing analogy to teach us how temptation originates. And the idea here in the Greek is it, that we are lured and that the lure is so enticing that we are literally dragged away from this in, by this enticement. It's a fishing analogy that he uses here. Uh, I don't know, some of you may have seen before, and sometimes on some of the outdoor programs, they'll, they'll advertise a lure. They'll do an info commercial about the lure that's going to catch whatever maybe you've seen those and and it it really is an interesting thing to watch because they don't just say this this lure will catch fish what they will do is they will put a camera underwater where there are fish that you're trying to catch and they'll drop that lure and they'll show you they'll work that lure they'll give it some action or they'll say this lure reminds the fish of a certain kind of thing and For the life of me, I don't know how they found that out. We interviewed 100 fish. (laughs) And uh, 90 out of 100 all told us that this lure was more enticing. I don't know how they get there, but they'll say, here, you know, we've watched the behavior. I think that's really what they're talking about. They've watched the behavior. They've studied the behavior of fish, and they've learned that there are certain kinds of lures that are more enticing to the fish and they can drop that in and they can give it certain kind of action sometimes they bump it off the bottom sometimes they direct reel and all kinds of different things like that and that fish is so enticed it's so lured that it can't resist some years ago a man who uh, moved uh, there they live in another uh, um, area another city uh, was a semi-pro uh, a bass fisherman. I grew up loving to bass fish. I used to do it. I, I, I'd do it in the lakes. I would, I would wade up streams, and it's amazing how many fish are in some of these streams people don't even know about, and, and I would fish like that. I love to, to do that, to bass fish, and so I, I'd said that in a sermon at some point in time, and he heard that, and he said, Pastor, I want to take you bass fishing. And I said, well, I said, you know, I'll have to schedule it out and all that kind of stuff, so at any rate, we did, and 
And uh, he took me on this first outing, and we went to a place, and it was a day where the fish weren't biting, the bass weren't biting. We caught, I think, 13, but it was a bad day. We had to work real hard to catch fish, okay? But he knew what he was doing, and even on a bad day, because he was a pro at it, he knew where to, uh, we'll get some fish here, but we won't get a lot. Well, he was very disappointed because he thought he was going to take the pastor for the, the mother load of, of, of bass. And so a few uh, weeks later, he called and said, I, I've got another place set up for us. And he said, can you go? I said, well, I've got to get on my calendar and, you know, I've got things I've got to adjust. And so we did. We, we did. And so he took me to this place. And it was a private kind of reservoir lake, about 100 acres, not a small thing, but but at any rate, we put in about 7 o'clock in his boat, and that morning we put in about 7 o'clock, and we began to fish. And for about the first 30 minutes, we didn't catch anything. And then all of a sudden, they began to bite, and we began to, uh, to, to catch fish. And I mean, it was unlike any experience I've ever had in my life. Before the day was out, we had caught around 100 largemouth bass. We didn't keep 100. But this place had asked us, would you fish out the two and three uh, uh, I mean, uh, the two and three pounders, would you fish, fish those out? We caught, I, I caught two or three that were five and six pounds. Uh, just in, incredible uh, fishing. And here's why I tell you that. We caught them on what's called topwater lures. It's real fun because you can see at certain places, you can see the fish run out and hit a topwater lure. We caught them on spinnerbait. We caught them on worms. We fished in the middle of the lake, structure fished, all these kinds of things. We were catch it didn't matter what we put in, we were catching them. It was my arm was literally, it was tired trying to pull fish in. We're gonna keep doing this. <laughs> you know. And we pulled these fish in all day long. I think we fished from about seven to three in the afternoon, and frankly, they were still there. We were just tired. There were that many. But we were using all these different lures. But the most fascinating thing was the one where you could see the lure and you could see the fish come after it. Boom. And you knew it was about to hit it. And that adrenaline starts running. But it was the lure. It wasn't real. Fish are so stupid. <laughs> it was the lure that made the difference. And we pulled them in. We threw back all but just a small amount we kept. We threw them back. And they'll be dumb again. Because they'll bite on another lure. You know what? That's what James says. That's, that's how temptation works. It's like a fishing lure. It looks so good. It looks so irresistible. And before you know it, before you know it, you can't resist and you bite down on that. And when you bite down, everything changes. You know what the devil does? He appeals to your desires. That's how he gets it started. It starts here. That's why the Bible has so much to say about your mind. Be renewed by the transforming uh, uh, of your mind. The devil's been using this from the garden all the way to the day. And he uses your own desires to trick you and create curiosity and fool you into living in the moment and swallowing his lie and hooking you forever. It begins with a desire stage. 
That's why your response initially to this first stage will determine what happens next. It is the reason you are counseled in Scripture to guard your mind. Because if you don't, you move to the second stage. James gives us a second stage. That's the delivery stage. Desire stage first, delivery stage second. He says, did you see this? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Temptation, second stage, is the delivery or the conception stage. It takes us beyond just our desire and it moves us to the deed, to the action. It's the stage when you move from thinking about something sinful to believing that you will not be satisfied until you have or do whatever you are being lured with or teased with. And in the first stage, James uses the picture of a fishing lure, okay? But in this stage, it is the picture of childbirth. He uses this picture of birth, this analogy of of giving birth to conceptualize this stage. And did you notice, again, the word desire that's a part of all of this sort of thing? Then desire, this is... Let me just give you a little Greek lesson here. This word is, to, it means to crave uncontrollably. He gets you thinking about it, then he gets you craving whatever it is, craving it beyond your capacity to control it. It means to long for with the greatest of intensity. Listen to what John said in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, listen, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. John, you see, picks up on this whole idea of desires and he points out the way you're desires turn into cravings he calls it the lust of the flesh that's the craving to feel something then he says there's the lust of the eyes this is the craving to have something and then he says there's the pride of life that's the craving to be something that's how James helps us understand how this desire becomes a craving. In in other words, temptation's goal is to drag us away by our own cravings. We may not have had them before, but the devil gets it stirring right here. Then it becomes a craving, and the craving drags us away into conception. You notice how how he said that, the conception say, when a person begins to look at and think about the forbidden thing, the forbidden desire, then the two, desire and lust, are conceived in the mind, and they produce or they conceive a child. That child is called sin. That's the product. And then that has a subsequent issue, and that's the third stage. So we have the desire stage we have the delivery or when the deed is actually conceived and then James gives us the end product the last stage the death stage 
He says when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. You see, James is teaching us that when we yield to temptation, the temptation will eventually destroy you. You, you can't swim with sin repeatedly and not eventually be harmed. And notice that the fruit that it eventually brings, he says, is destruction, it is ruin, it is death. It's certainly not spiritual growth. Are you with me now? Remember we started with trials and the product of of trials responded to correctly grows you spiritually. But that's not the case here. There is a product when temptation is responded to wrongly that produces ruin in your life. It can can produce, you say, what kind of death? Well, it can be a spiritual kind of death. You talk to someone who uh, is is, uh, in a a habit of yielding to, to temptation and it will affect their spiritual health, their spiritual well-being. It's a kind of spiritual death, and if if it continues, it continues, it can cause them to lose or become spiritually apathetic. It can can cripple a person physically. In fact, some sin yielded to, some temptation yielded to can produce or birth a kind of sin that eventually leads to physical death. And that's why it always has a negative effect. I will say this, any temptation yielded to damages your fellowship with God. Any temptation yielded to damages your fellowship with God. Fortunately, we have this promise in the book of John that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have to practice that. I had to practice that this morning. That's the the good news of our God. Hello? But I really believe that a lot of Christians are cold and they're cold and lifeless spiritually simply because of the fruit of temptation yielded to in their life has birthed some sin or sin habit and it has undermined their walk and their fellowship with God. And until you deal with it, if that's you, I'm talking to television or radio or live stream or in this live audience today, if that's you, until you deal with it, that kind of spiritual dryness will continue to persist, a, a spiritual a hard-heartedness where, where the, God's Word doesn't penetrate or get through to you uh, any longer. It may have one time, but it's not now. It, it, unless you deal with it, you're going to miss the kind of spiritual power that God wants you living with. And The absence of that is going to remain and it's going to drag you further away from the sweet fellowship of God. On August 11, 2014, actor Robin Williams took his life. Maybe you remember that. He was 63 years old and he was loved by so many people. He was a uh, 
very funny man and had so many people that loved him and actors that admired him. But he was and had been an admitted abuser of cocaine. He also referred to that as his addiction of, to Peruvian marching powder and the devil's dandruff. In 2006, he checked himself into a rehab center to be treated for an addiction to alcohol. He had fallen off the wagon after some 20 years of sobriety. And he later explained in an interview with ABC's Diane Sawyer that, that this addiction of his, and this is what he said, this is how he describes it. He says, it waits. It lays in wait for the time when you think it's fine now. I'm okay, I got this. But then he adds, but then the next thing you know, it's not okay. Well, friend, that's why you've got to deal with the sin that is the conceived product of temptation, of lust and desire, so that it does not take you down and ruin your walk and fellowship with God. Jack Handy was known for his odd sense of humor. He, he was an actor on the old Saturday Night Live, and he had, a, he had an episode, or a, I guess a segment, you would say, called Deep Thoughts, and it was oddball kinds of things. But he wrote an equally odd book titled Fuzzy Memories. And in that book, Handy relates the story of a bully who demanded that, he, that, that Jack give him his lunch money every day when he was a child. So the bully would say to Jack, I want your lunch money. I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. And, and Jack in his book said, and so I gave this bully my money. But he said, then I decided I was going to fight back. Enough is enough. And so he said, I started taking karate lessons. But the instructor wanted $5 a lesson. He said, in my day, that was a lot of money. So I finally realized it was cheaper to pay the bully, so I gave up karate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we laugh at that, but unfortunately, I think many Christians have kind of developed that attitude about Satan and the temptations that come their way. That it's easier just to pay the bully than to learn how to fight him. Well, friend, I want to close this morning by telling you, you don't have to live that way. The devil is a bully. And by the way, the devil never takes a break. He doesn't take a vacation. The devil didn't take off because it's Labor Day weekend. He's, he, he, the devil doesn't say, I'll pick back up on Tuesday. He never takes a break. He is a bully. And you would think, we sometimes think, well, at least, you know, when a person is down, he won't just keep kicking them. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Because you see, what he doesn't want to do is just beat you up. He wants to destroy you. The thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy, Jesus said. And a lot of folks have just said, I'm just going to pay the bully. I'm just going to give in. But you don't have to do that. Why? Because the Bible says you have resources Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Bible says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Paul said, clothe yourself with the full armor of God. You've got all these resources 
and you're, I'm going to the Father so that the Spirit can come to you. You remain in Jerusalem until you're endowed with power. Paul said that we can know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You know what our biggest problem is? It may not be the enemy of our soul. It's the lack of tapping into the power that belongs to us as children of God. Not taking that serious, that that is available to us. So, I give you a way to overcome temptation. First of all, be aware of how temptation comes and how it progresses. That's what James has done. This is where you'll understand temptation better than any place else. Stay in this book. I'll talk about that in just a second. So understand how it operates. Understand how the devil's going to operate. <clears throat> and be on guard. I mean, walk around like this. Number two. If temptation attacks our thoughts then we must transform our minds, and we do that. And by the way, when I say if temptation attacks our thoughts, and it does, that's rhetorical. It does. Remember, it's where it starts. Then we have to transform our mind. We have to renew it with Scripture. And by the way, if you say, I, I've done that, but I've also failed so many times. I've just about given up. Don't give up. Keep fighting. And if you fall, get back up. Get back up. Get back in the Word of God. Get back obedient to God. This is war. This is war. Don't put yourself in a place where you can yield. But if you uh, fail, get back up. There's an old TV show. Some of you will remember it. I watched it with my parents uh, growing up called Hee Haw. <laughs> Man, they loved that show. I have to tell you, I hated that and I hated Lawrence Well. Our parents fooled us when we were kids. Oh, the bubble machine. And we were naive and we fell for it. But hee-haw, I remember hee-haw. And we had to watch it. You know, you only had like two, maybe three channels at best. And so you had to watch whatever came on in hee-haw every Saturday night. Every Saturday night. Hee-haw. Come on, we're all watching hee-haw. How many of you watch hee-haw? Now here, I'm not going to ask, well, I'll ask it, but don't answer it. A whole bunch of you liked it. <laughs> but there was a character on there named Doc Campbell. Y'all remember Doc Campbell on Hee Haw? Those of you, a whole bunch of you watched it. Sure, do, yeah, say, yeah, I remember Doc Campbell. Well, there was a, one episode where, you know, he always did this kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of stuff, and so they show up... <laughs> This person shows up and says, Doc, I broke my arm in two places. And Doc Campbell looks back and says, well, stop going to those two places. <laughs> That's pretty cheesy, isn't it? But I have to tell you, you may be on to something. You see, we can't regularly put ourselves in the face of temptation and not be affected. When we're, when we're 
faced with a problem of temptation, maybe we need to take the good old doctor's advice and get out of those places, right? And get back into the right place, the Word of God, with the people of God. And then, last, I'd tell you, if the temptation comes from some attraction to your senses, like seeing, hearing, tasting, and touching, and that's just about always the case, then we turn our head or our body away and flee the temptation. In that moment, you have to make a choice. Am I going to stay here and and toy with the temptation, or I'm going to turn my back and run? That's why Paul told Timothy, flee from youthful lust. Don't even entertain. Don't even give it a possibility. Get out of there. That's why Paul said this, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You're not powerless in this fight, but you're not capable of winning it without the supernatural power of the Spirit of God operating in your life. And you can have victory. You see the difference between trials and temptations? Let's pray. Father, We know we all are in that world, in in this broken world that's full of temptation and trouble, trials too. But Father, help us to see, keep our eyes open to the enemy who's roaming about, teasing us and trying to, Father, find us in those vulnerable moments. Help us, Father, to live, to get up, to put on the armor of God, to be filled with the Spirit of God so that we do not walk in the power of our flesh. Father, I pray for any that are watching here today and uh, in this live audience, wherever they may be, that, that, Father, feel like they just keep losing the battle, that you will, you will encourage their hearts with the hope of your word. And Father, you will cause them to confess and turn back to you. You will cause them to recognize that they have resources like your Holy Spirit to to fill them, not just reside in them, but to preside over them. I pray that they will recognize today, return to you. Some have given up. Some have just lost hope. Just think that they can't do it. But Father, would you let them know today that in you there's victory? And that's a daily thing, God. We have to get up every day, every day, every day and find new victory. Encourage their hearts, Lord. Make us strong, Father. Keep us aware and alert. Father, for those that are battling in some trial right now that's testing their soul, Lord, help them above all to keep their eyes on you so that the devil doesn't beat them up with temptation and sin. Thank you, Father that everything that we have to deal with, we can find help in from you. Before we're gone, speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation time? As always, I'll be here at the front, and I want to invite you to slip out and make your way to the front, maybe to pray around this altar and go before God and whatever it may be that you need to talk to him about or someone you're praying for, decisions, whatever it be.
Use this. Don't miss this opportunity. Maybe you need to trust Christ as your Savior. Maybe you need to call on Him. Would you slip out? Come down here. We'll help you with that. Not going to embarrass you, but we will help you with that and how you can have this personal relationship with the power of all powers, our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning. You need a church home or church family. Look, this is not a perfect church, and I've said it for 22-plus years. I'm not a perfect pastor, but this is, a, this is a very healthy church full of a lot of good people. You know how I know that? Because a lot of you are sitting in different places today, and you didn't even grouse about not being able to sit in your regular seat. This is a good place, and we love new people in our family. And I want to invite you to come and join. If you're watching by live stream, you can become a part of our family. You can make any of those decisions. Use that QR code and, and you'll see information about how you can do that. You can, in this room, you can take that tear-off panel. You can take that to our Welcome Center desk and we'll, we'll take it from there. But I want to invite you in this moment to slip out balcony, ground floor. You come, whatever the decision is, you come if you want to just pray. Right now, as Brother Aaron leads us, you come on.